0: came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response.
1: Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place.
2: Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding.
1: I'm Ksenia Čmutina.
2: And I'm Darian Alexander-Williams. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine
3: why disasters really happen. Today's episode is part of season four.
1: Thank you for tuning
4: in.
3: Welcome. Uh, this is the final episode. I'm really glad to be back out of my cave that i was in for a while and i'm really
4: <laughs> I'm really happy
3: to be sharing space with both of you and you the listener
1: hi darren hi jason
2: hey yeah welcome back Darren. i know you you've been busy and uh towards the second half of the season and uh and we missed you and
3: but you emerged and progressed in your work eh? Yes, I've emerged, I've progressed. I'm now a PhD candidate. Sweet. Um, I am super, yeah, enthused even to be reflective about these conversations that we've had this past season. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel really lucky to be part of uh, this amazing project um, and get to kind of curate all these voices
1: absolutely one confession actually so <laughs> i actually had to look up what does phd candidate mean in the us <laughs> <Same>. phd system <laughs> me too because I, I, I don't know i don't know your system people it is so confusing um, yeah. i i don't I, I still don't understand it um but i do know what phd candidate means
3: <laughs> i appreciate so, yeah, you for that because i um yeah i had to look it up too even within our <laughs> school it's not standard from department to department what candidate candidacy means or signifies um so it's a mess it's a total mess
1: why why so difficult um and this this whole like phd candidate also professor why is everyone a professor so many things uh, i need to figure out about us academia
2: i feel like this might just become a kind of battle uk us kind of cultural dispute so
1: Oh <laughs> <laughs> I know, and given that I'm not even British, I'm not even sure what it is I'm fighting for, right? Like, yeah. so <laughs> never mind, anyway, back to the podcast, season four final episode, wow, um two years into podcasting exciting
2: yeah i I tweeted the other day that we just released our seventy fifth episode um Ooh. on yeah, yeah, congrats everybody. it's been um. Like that's not even including live streams. We have lots of lots of stuff on the back burner that we're going to release on the podcast that we've been doing via sure. YouTube and stuff. Um, so we have some special episodes coming up, um, but 75 official episodes. Pretty cool.
1: Do we get to have a party when it's 100 episodes?
2: Yes, you know it.
1: <laughs>
2: uh, we have to have a party. It's okay, fine.
1: Fantastic. Yeah. We'll, have a, we'll have a party. We will also need to have like a uniform or something. Um, I don't know. Um, I'll think about <laughs> it. I have 25 episodes to think about this.
4: Okay.
1: <laughs> but anyway, back to season four. So well, first of all, Darren, it's been just so amazing to work with you and just to get to know you better. Mm-hmm. Um, I've,
5: mm-hmm. I just
1: cannot tell you again how much I've enjoyed it. So um, and we'll talk more about this today. Um. And we had some great speakers and I'm sure the audience enjoyed the diversity of speakers that we had um, and as always as you all know i particularly like our audience participation episodes i always enjoy them so much so thank you all for giving us your time and for you know for contributing but also for um just being with us and supporting us um jason already said that we had quite a few special episodes and live streams in this season we talked about disasters in the built environment um in collaboration with the cib working commission 120 that Jason and I are jointly coordinating, coordinating? co-coordinating, is that a word? Uh, I don't know. We had a special episode on um, disasters and status quo, which kind of reflected on the IRAC conference that we had in 2019 in Florida. We have... spoken about artificial intelligence, um, co-hosting this live stream with Radar based at University. And of course, you guys also co-hosted the live stream with Florida Climate Institute. So lots of fun stuff and more to come over the summer months, hopefully. Mm. Now, my favorite question, Jason, tell us the numbers. What was the most popular episode this season?
2: Okay, so um, yeah, it's, be- it's been great. We've welcomed a lot of new listeners lots of new subscribers who are downloading every week and i think i think it's been kind of a, a departure into some more like a deeper analysis of maybe structural issues in society and part of that is just like the very embodied perspective i think that emerged through um your contribution darian and Mm-hmm. Um, some of the guests that came on in the first half of season four, um, I really appreciated that. And I think I think we, uh, a lot of new people started listening and hopefully um, just just kind of related to that content. There was one one day where we had a, a real spike in downloads, and that was um, the episode on Latin America and the Caribbean. Okay. Um, and that was like our largest one mm. day download um, or downloads in one day. So that was that was a cool kind of highlight that jumps out from the stats. Um, mm. And that that was uh, Irisema. And um, mm. and then the the most downloaded episode in season four is Faola Jacobs, Black Feminism. That's and um, Ooh, which was an amazing episode. I loved it. Um, Some other things to mention, like we like I've mentioned in previous season summaries, we tend to have a lot of listeners in the UK and US. And um, what what kind of sticks out to me this season is that we have a lot more listeners in Australia, New Zealand and Canada. So welcome to all those people. A lot of you are new, I think. we have been we have been talking to different people about developing content in other languages, which I think would be amazing. Mm-hmm. It's kind of beyond our own capabilities right now. Um, yeah, personally speaking, I have very little competency in other languages. But um, <laughs> you know, we, we had we had that uh, really cool episode in Spanish before, and I know a few people have expressed interest in maybe. Uh, developing Spanish language podcast in this kind of area we would we hope to Mm -hmm. see that happen in the future right Mm -hmm. so yeah that's that's kind of my summary of what's been going on and really looking forward to um this episode where we're going to play some of the favorite moments of ours from the season and just talk about some of
3: the key themes Mm. Mm mm-hmm it was really great to curate so many amazing voices at the start of this season and we got to chat about so many things that we don't often or ever really chat about in disaster studies mm-hmm. or talk about things in a new way um i think for many of our speakers they were really thinking about scale across time and geography and even continents um in ways that i learned from in the conversations uh with them alongside Y'all, the listeners, um, mm. and I thought that was especially uh, especially salient in conversations with Arshon Abrams about food and mass extinction, um, with Luis Callegos about public schools, and with Benjamin Ruiz Rosado about vicarious trauma um, in the human body.
6: But now, if you're saying, okay, it doesn't matter, these grass can go extinct. You know, yeah. If it just went extinct tomorrow, um, would we be fine? No, it, we wouldn't be fine because there are a lot of ecological roles that the Everglades provides for people in South Florida, particularly in fresh water, right? So a lot of getting the fresh water that we uh, that they get in South Florida is from uh, groundwater, and a lot of that groundwater has to be filtered through the Everglades. So if you destroyed the Everglades, you destroyed by the extinction of certain species you've triggered all these small interactions that then lead to bad consequences for humans. And we see this a lot, even where, uh, and on the fault of biologists too, where they're like, oh, you know, we're going to bring in this species in order to change something, or we're going to, you know, try and manipulate it a little so it's a bit more comfortable for human habitation. Um, and then you completely damage the uh, delicate ecosystem and it leads to to negative consequences. So you could be okay with extinction happening and it is a natural process, but we also aren't guaranteed to be around, right? (laughs) Like if you are, if you're comfortable with other things going extinct, are you comfortable with you going extinct too? And
4: it's not just a policy question, right? Like these are conversations happening within schools. Like these are conversations that I've had with uh, staff members um, and, and trying to find, you know, what is the most equitable, policy to put in place to support our kids in this crisis has been a a real challenge. Um, And when I hear parents on the news, when I hear politicians on the news tell us, you know, we need to open up our school, we need to, you know, keep our kids in school and and keep going uh, like things are normal, it it is really disheartening to hear that because it's not taking into account that our kids are not experience at school like they normally, would. they're alone in their rooms, right? As they learn, they're or um, trying to learn, you know, they're navigating all of these challenges. Folks are experiencing the effects and consequences of this pandemic, and I'm sure with any disaster in different ways, and that is very much mediated by different identities that they hold or that, you know, like the system is like, that they're going to hold. Um It's making me think of something that we say, and my co-worker Melview, always brings up how, you know, there's this narrative we hear right now like we're all in this together. And I know that we push back in our trainings and learning spaces to remind folks that, you know, we're all in this together, but we're not all experiencing this in the same way. And I think it's exactly kind of like what, you are breaking up, and the reasons are very much. You know, we know that Black and Brown immigrant and native communities are disproportionately affected by this pandemic. We know that um, majority of essential workers are Black, Latinx, and Brown folks.
1: And isn't it fantastic that all these themes are really so connected to disasters, although we kind of hardly ever think about it um, this way, right? Um, And I guess this showed to us again, how important the way that we form our narratives and how important storytelling is. And we spoke about storytelling on the podcast before. Um, We talked about different forms and different media. And uh, in this season, we spoke to Quincy Walters about storytelling and radio.
4: As a reporter, I'm, I'm the one going out and seeing things. Um, as an editor, I feel like editors mainly survey the news landscape by what they see in, in local media, like whatever the local newspaper is. Um, and so that's sort of their idea of what the pulse of news is. Um, but as a reporter, as someone who's out in the field, I'm sort of seeing things happen that may conflict with an editor's idea of what the, the news agenda should be. So it's something that happens all the time. Um, not only with disasters, but it, it could be sort of a, exacerbated by a disaster.
2: And something that has been really a staple of the podcast from day one is um talking about uh, the real core core messages of disaster risk reduction and disaster risk creation what is a disaster um and trying to focus people onto the syst- the kind of systemic nature of risk and a kind of root cause analysis of disasters right and so What's been really exciting in this season has been to to hear about um, disaster studies from so many different angles and um, so many different geographical perspectives, and especially in the second half of the season, when we uh, talked to a lot of different people from the Global South and working in the Global South, um, talking about many of these issues that we've discussed right from the start of the from the outset of our podcast, but from um a much much more like in a in a local voice and in a in a um voice of people with the experience. Like so often we we talk about um these inequities and oppressions that exist from um from our own perspective and I think it's important to to work with the global south and actually listen and learn. Um, and so we were we were just delighted to welcome um, people like Irisema, Alcantara, Yala, talking about Latin America and the Caribbean, and Barbara Carby about um, mainstreaming DRR and solidarity, and Jake Kadag from the Philippines, who was talking about community-centered work in Southeast Asia. Um, and so these are some of the voices that I think really broadened our understanding of DRR.
7: Although some work has been done with research and education institution, I feel that in this side of the work, we still need to strengthen collaboration among universities, our regional and subnational skills, and building partnerships between the science and the technology community and the relevant authorities to ensure science-based or informed decision-making becomes the norm rather than random events. We have already mentioned the need to move towards an increasing integrated disaster risk research, which is rather important. And, 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 you know, although it is included in the Sendai framework, creating and implementing scientific committees to support policymaking at national national state and if possible although i know it is difficult but it would be great to have also municipal levels but we are still um, we still have this this uh, tasks pending ahead of us
4: what is interesting is that in the in the caribbean when we have a weather related or climate related event It affects multiple countries, which of course may not be the case elsewhere. In the United States, for example, you could have multi-state effects, but the the impact is really on one country. The other aspect of major disasters in the region is that because the countries are so small, the impact is disproportionate.
5: And uh, each person or... I a group of people, each family or social group has um, personal or maybe group interest to protect. Uh, it's either for their livelihood or any economic and political interest. And then I think there are significant aspects of power relationship in the community. But in my experience, one way to navigate this power relationship is to actually uh, uh, live in the community. what what i realized that to understand those interests to to understand people it's not enough to just meet or encounter them like in one two-day workshop or seminars uh, uh, or several interviews in the community for about a week for our research or to to complete uh, that aspect of uh, that methodology in the paper I, i believe it takes more than more time than
1: What I guess the podcast in general uh, made me think about a lot is how we use words, right, and how we use concepts and uh, terminology that are just so kind of prolific and prominent um, in just risk reduction. And this is what I particularly enjoyed in this season, in that we were able to, I think, really unpack and perhaps you know explore and debate and discuss these different um, isms, right, um, that that are somehow um, play such an important role in everything that we do or kind of often pretend to do right and that was the part Mm -hmm. of the discussion i think what what perhaps we were able to highlight and i'm just so glad that um we did thanks to our guests is that many of the concepts Um, such as resilience, such as vulnerability capacities, Um, even risk, right? Um, And all the phrases like building back better are really, uh, whilst perhaps at some stage were quite neutral, right, and innocent, um, now have been reinvented um, and abused um, and Mm -hmm. so have become very politicized and therefore really have been used, I think, particularly in the past couple of years as really... um, tools of oppression, right? Um, Of course, Wes and I talked about building back better um, so much, right, and resilience have been, really we've been discussing this so much on the podcast and off the podcast. And what was so amazing is that we were really able to explore further how different people, not just fight against um, kind of the use of this concept but also try to kind of to reimagine and reframe and reinstate and reestablish them. In a way that somehow, you know, we don't pretend that these concepts are all encompassing, right? And all inclusive and that they work for everyone and for all, but that nevertheless they have meaning and that meaning can be built upon if we think about this conceptually, right? And we understand it better and it can actually help us um, to challenge disaster risk creation.
8: Mm.
1: And one of the concepts that um, I really enjoyed listening to the episodes about is the concept of feminism. Viola Jacobs explored black feminism fantastically. I have learned so much from that episode, and I'm sure many other listeners have as well. And Cheryl Potter perhaps opened the discussion about feminism, and in particular, sexuality, in a way that we don't really... Talk about at all because somehow this is you know just not um, not 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 a discussed concept, right? Um, in in the framing of disasters.
9: I I think that there's a paucity of talking about sexuality in most disciplines, and it's not only in the area of disaster studies. Um, If I look at psychology, it's uh, for many decades, it was also silenced or even though there is an increase in talking about it. But if we go back, I also believe that it's not that sexuality has not been spoken about. It's the way in which it has been spoken about. It's either in a a negative way or sexuality is dirty or children are under 12 or under 13, they don't have a sexuality. And uh, I I think that religion has a a lot to, to account for, all religions, in the silencing of sexuality. And obviously, religion is very closely linked to Uh, in many countries to the state and to institutions, whether it is schools or um, or sporting institution or whatever the case. Let me put it this way, sexual silence leads to sexual violence.
8: When I think about mainstream feminism and white feminism, I think a lot about the fight in the U.S. for women to get the vote, and the way that white women left black, indigenous, Latinx, and all other non-white people behind when they were like, yes, we've got the vote, wait, Will come back for you. It will. You'll get your turn just now. And that is how I think about white feminism. Like centering gender without an understanding that gender and experiences of sexism are also experienced by, are also shaped by experiences of racism, classism. You know the the standard things that we think about when we think about the term intersectionality. And I mean, I hesitate to think about black feminism's contribution as just being intersectionality just because even before the word was used like black feminism had so many things that to offer us um, but I think a lot one of the most powerful things is that people were talking Angela Davis was talking about intersectionality before Crenshaw terms said the term intersectionality you know and so it's really this far-reaching-back concept. I mean, Sojourner Truth said intersectionality without saying intersectionality. And so what, for me, Black feminism does is it moves us from this liberal form of feminism where everything is based on the individual and we're moved to think about systems.
3: One other uh, sort of reframing, restating, and reimagining uh, that I appreciate from this season um, was the conversation with Danielle Rivera about uh, coloniality and disaster and um, really drawing out the points from her brilliant paper on the subject involving Puerto Rico, but sort of locating some of this power in a stream of history, um, which helps us have a better perspective about what's, what lies ahead.
10: It, it comes from a place of first recognizing that Puerto Rico has been a, um, under colonization for over 500 years now, first under the Spanish, now under the U.S., and that that relationship, um, the nature of that relationship has a substantial effect on their ability to uh, recover after a disaster. And that actually that process of trying to recover after a disaster is what helps, I you know, I think in some ways to inscribe and deepen that colonization. Um, and so I think to me it's, you know, really being able to see back in time to understand how perhaps, you know, as you were saying, what we're seeing today, perhaps the effects of Maria and Irma, even though they were a few years ago, we still see their impacts. Um, how that's reminiscent of, or sort of built upon those previous hurricanes that we've seen throughout uh, Puerto Rico's history, uh, previous earthquakes, um, previous sort of takeovers, right? Like all of these things sort of start to erode infrastructure, physical space, the policies and um, procedures for dealing with disaster, even you know, before the hurricane. So, we've already sort of established relationships that will impact the next hurricane. And I think it's about how can we disrupt that uh, trend? How can we disrupt that um, ongoing sort of system?
5: Mm.
2: And another theme that really came across strongly in our season is the theme of justice and indeed injustice but um, two conversations that were really important in drawing this out were um, the episode we have with marcus Hendricks talking about infrastructure justice um, which was a, a really really great episode just talking about how to get out of the ivory tower into the community work with people towards solutions that are both technical and um, social and then the conversation we had with Belaine Demasson about um, feminism and urbanism and the Amazon and um, an amazing episode again that was looking at uh, justice for who and um, justice beyond the human even. And I thought um, that was another amazing episode just to deepen our understanding of justice.
0: And I think that if planners and city officials and other relevant organizations, um, if they can engage residents in participatory and community science processes to identify unmet needs and opportunities for improving the built environment, um, to ensure an equitable distribution of resources, increase transparency, build on that trust and democracy and communicate progress toward public safety will all be better for it. Um, And I think the investment in physical and non-physical public health and environmental infrastructures under the guidance and oversight of the public to mitigate threats to public safety is, in fact, the democracy that we all deserve right now. Um, And if we want ultimately community buy-in which we absolutely need for any of this to be successful and have longevity, then we have to meaningfully involve the community in that process. And in fact, make sure that they're the power holders and decision makers.
11: What we're seeing now with feminist urbanism uh, is discussing how our cities have been, basically been designed from a male perspective actually from like a certain privileged group of males. Uh, so it's all about productivity, competitivity, uh, which completely uh, renders invisible care or reproductive activities, which are in many, many cases carried out by women, are usually unpaid um, and are increasingly becoming more and more privatized or individualized as, as they happen in the domestic realm. Um, and I think it's really interesting what we're seeing now, and, and, and it's getting also a lot of strength during COVID, is, is the idea that's being pushed by feminist urbanism uh, that in the promotion of the collectivization of care activities. So it's not only a matter of you know uh, claiming that men should be taking more care <laughs> about care activities, uh, but actually that, that society as a whole uh, should be facilitating those activities.
1: And of course, as I mentioned earlier already, my favorite episode was about vulnerability. Um, Again, because I I felt that it it really kind of pushed us to perhaps um, challenge the way we understand vulnerability. And we all, I'm sure, um, agree that vulnerability has been overused perhaps, right, in a way that um, in the framing of disasters. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Um, And I think that um, this discussion of vulnerability was very much connected to all the concepts we've unpacked um, throughout this season and in previous seasons and it was somewhat relevant to all the conversations and particularly what it highlighted for me is that we really need to read and think outside of disaster scholarship to be able to really engage with broad understanding of disaster risk creation if we you know if we stick to just disaster kind of stuff i don't think we will be able to push ourselves and to push discipline um, any further. Weak is a really generalized category, right? So when we help, we help women or we help disabled people or we help children because clearly all the women and all the children, we're, we're just all kind of vulnerable in exactly the same way, right? And then, you know, people come and help us. Great. Thank you so much. Um, So what that rejects is, is the human experience, right? I suppose this rejection is actually critical in the capitalist state, right? Because if we are different, then those differences need to be acknowledged, right? And catered for. But that is not efficient. That is not productive. It kind of, you know, we'll spend something, we'll spend time on something that we can actually spend producing things.
2: In relation to that, um, and I mentioned this to you, Ksenia. I don't know if I talked to you about it, Darian, but um, the the panel that I was on at the annual conference for Sofa- Society for Applied Anthropology um, about disaster concepts, um, which was which was really an interesting panel, but it was like discussing some of these things you talked about before, Ksenia, about kind of the co opting of concepts and um, concepts that are possibly really useful being used by the oppressor and um, so the necessity to really have develop a deep understanding um, of like not only the history and origin but also a theoretical um, or a deep theoretical toolbox I guess that we can use these concepts in healthy ways and push back when they're used in unhealthy ways but like, Yeah, watch this space because I think there's a lot of things that we're working on, especially in relation to the concept of vulnerability, which has been used in a kind of myopic way in disaster studies, in my in my view. And um, hopefully, these kind of discussions will become more common. Where I think, in terms of resilience, we can probably say that it's pretty hotly contested. And I know some people are just tired of it and want to move beyond it, but I I think we gotta always be willing to have it, have those conversations, as long as they are, um, helping us move towards, you know, you know, contributing towards a struggle against oppression.
3: Right. I feel like I have mixed feelings about this, um, (laughs) on one hand, and this is like not a perfect analog, but I'm I'm thinking about Toni Morrison's, uh, reflections on like, oh, like, one of the tools of the oppressor, um, and one of like the tools of racism is to sort of keep the oppressed, like explaining themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I wrestle with that. And then with also my firm belief in the importance of language and naming things and being very clear about what that is, um, and about having sort of like a common point of connection with other people. And I never quite know how to strike that balance between being really clear and uh, being focused about using the right language for some of the things that we're seeing in in this world. And, oh, actually, there's so many resources that are being put into that and not put into other sorts of things or put into that as a way to prevent um, other forms of tangible connection and action being done. And I know as, scholars it's easy for me to think about us as educators and about our main weapon or tool being the pen or the word um Mm -hmm. but i don't know i I don't know i I don't know where this lands for me Um, but this season has helped me sort of think about it in more tangible ways and i'm really appreciative of it
2: yeah thank you for
3: that darian and i like my take on that is
2: the oppressed should not need to continue to explain to the oppressor like, like the the meaning of things or educate, educating them. And so maybe I'm maybe it's more like from my personal perspective, I feel that I need to always be willing to have those conversations from my position to push back on miseducation, push back against views that are harmful, especially um in relation to other people of great privilege mm-hmm. i saw i saw like the i don't know there was some conversation uh, maybe last week on twitter about um you know different concepts that people just were over debating mm-hmm. and I had, i had kind of mixed feelings on that you know because i think there's certain conversations where some people should have no responsibility to anybody to be involved in a certain space, right? However, for me, there's a lot of concepts where other people, um, where if I didn't push back on, that would be irresponsible of me because it doesn't cost me a
3: lot to be involved, right? Yeah, I feel that. I think I witnessed part of that that Twitter conversation. I think there are like different motives, right? There's like... Some people brought up ideas that it, it's just assumed that folks are on the same page and they're tired of like hearing more about it mm-hmm. versus like, well, I know I feel very strongly because I brought up in my field this a lot of time spent debating definitions of place versus space.
6: Mm-hmm.
3: And I'm mm-hmm. like, I don't <laughs> I I see an importance in distinguishing that in like research, but not spending so much time on that distinction and just kind of like. Signaling what language you're using and then moving forward. Um, cause otherwise it just seems very, I don't know. It seems very academic <laughs> and like, I use that disparagingly, even though, um, I do love some parts of the academy.
1: I agree with you, Darren, and that we, I, I think as, a, as academics, we are very good at hiding behind debates that, um, you know, because because the debates allow us not to express our feelings and they allow us not to express our emotion, right? We can kind of almost hide behind um, intellect, which is rational, if you wish, right? Um, again, kind of going completely into enlightenment and Western thinking here, um, and I, I, I find it very problematic, and I, I so many times and I'm sure you've you've guys had that before you know when when so many academics say that or oh, but um yeah th- this, um you know th- th- this is useful um but then a person on the ground kind of would would never understand that right and they don't need to because we will tell them right like what to do
4: hmm.
1: but is is this why we're here like is <laughs> I, I i just i I don't feel that Um, That is my place as an academic to tell people what to do, you know. Um, And yes, um, whilst I I believe the theory is extremely important and debate is extremely important, there is time and place for it. And the assumption that everyone is on the same page or everyone is on different pages, right, and we can can continue talking about it without actually reaching um, a solution, right, Um, or at at least some kind of step towards a solution. I I think we need to be able to to challenge that. I'm not sure if any of that made any coherent sense whatsoever. Um.
2: It does make sense. I think it's about what the purpose is for the debate. You know, right? If, mm-hmm. So if the if the use of language and the uh, or or the co-opting of a word um, is actually causing harm. Um, or if a reframe offers, like, political potential, then I think there's a much greater, um, you know, reason to participate in that than Mm -hmm. there is if you're just trying to, like, win an argument,
3: (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think those, like, those motivations are always sort of stated, or at least it's not incentivized for researchers to sort of state those motivations before engaging in a debate, um, which I think obscures uh, the point sometimes.
1: I think we need like 10 episodes on this, guys, you know? So (laughs) a lot to discuss.
3: (laughs) Well, that is it for this season. However, there are a few special episodes coming up, um, including a book group situation that's very exciting. Um, the ethics of disaster research in post-disaster contexts, and perhaps more, um, on the book group note, uh, we are reading, uh, Chinua Achebe's Arrow of God, chosen by Claudia Santos. Join us for a discussion in the next couple months, coming up really soon. Yeah,
2: can't wait for that. And those, um, other special episodes you know some of those are from live streams if anybody hasn't seen our live streams or participated please do get involved in that we do them kind of periodically we have um the the one with uh radar coming up on ai very soon that ksenia mentioned and um to get involved in that you can check us out on on the facebook group or um, on the youtube channel and that's where. well we stream to both those locations live and you can get on the chat and interact with the um the stream which is cool and fun we we would love if more people do that and um yeah so season five in july we have lots of amazing guests coming we have um a few things that we're we're talking about just preparing some special content and partnerships and um it's going to be exciting and we're going to be working in the next few months to put it all together so we're hoping that you all have enjoyed season four and we're looking forward to seeing you all again in july for season five
1: thank you all so much for supporting us um and i uh if you guys indulge me again um of course Mm -hmm. i of course sorry um i just you know i i think what i want to close this with is that very often um, I'm sure you perhaps are also asked like what why are we doing this? You know, why are we um why are we doing this podcast? You know, why are we trying to unpack all this? Um because it's difficult, right, sometimes. Um and it's it's time consuming and it's um it's challenging sometimes emotionally. Um but I and I and I've been thinking a lot about this. Um and um just so it happened um I I I remember this poem. I came across it in English. I've never read it in English before. Um, it's written by a Soviet poet, Vladimir Mayakovsky, um, who was kind of a Russian futurist uh, poet. He, he represents Russian pre-revolution, a Russian futurist uh, movement. Um, and I just, I just want to read that poem, uh, and it's called Listen. Listen, if stars are lit, it means there is someone who needs it. It means someone wants them to be, that someone deems those specks of spit magnificent. And overwrought and the swirls of afternoon dust, he bursts in on God, afraid he might be already late. In tears, he kisses God's sinewy hand and begs him to guarantee that there will be definitely a star. He swears he won't be able to stand that starless ordeal. Later, he wanders around, worried, but outwardly calm. And to everyone else, he says, Now it's all right. You're no longer afraid, are you? Listen, if stars are lit, it means there is someone who needs it. It means it is essential that every evening at least one star should ascend over the crest of the building.
2: Wow. So, what, what did you. Well, was... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what...
5: <laughs>
2: what was your takeaway from that poem? Oh. Why was it? Why why did it strike a chord with you? Uh,
1: so it, 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 this struck a chord with me, you know, m- many years ago, many decades ago, when I first read it, um, uh, Maikowski was one of my dad's favorite poets. Mm-hmm.
3: Um,
1: and it just, uh, it, I, I think, you know, very often people ask us kind of why, why we do things and we, d- we don't even know really, you know, we don't really have the answer, um, because something that is so kind of normal and, and obvious, um, to, to, to us, right, to our lives is, is not at all um, obvious and normal to other people people's lives um, and just through doing this podcast I, I kind of have, have, the podcast made me realize that more um, that what may seem ordinary for us is just not ordinary at all and that in kind of every action um, perhaps there is something um, that can be meaningful or we can make it meaningful and that every single one of us um, has power, you know, to change something for better, right? And to kind of bring something positive, even if it's that just one spit of magnificence.
2: Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast.
1: You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon.
2: The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe.
1: And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you.
2: You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time.